Welcome to another podcast by Every Nation Brisbane. We're so glad you can join us here today. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at enbrisbane.org. Please enjoy the following message. I'm going to read to you, interestingly enough, from the book of Leviticus today. We're going to be reading Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to be reading our various verses throughout that chapter. And so just follow along with me. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 20 says, And then when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. We jump to verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you for whoever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Let's bow our heads in prayer, everyone. Father, we thank you that your word guides us through life. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so we know how to live and how to approach you. God, I pray for an activation in our spirits that would stir about a good soil so that the seed of your word would germinate and bear fruit. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place that helps to bring light to the scriptures so that we can see you in the word. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Um, so we are in this series called Set Apart, and uh, we're going through the series with our spiritual family across the world. And as we're going through the series, we're looking at, and I just think it's cool that our leaders thought that a prominent topic to go through right at the start of the year is to explore this topic of holiness. And so today's message, which is the third in the series, is called Holiness Restored. Holiness Restored. And I'm going to ask you this question. Sorry, this question's a little extensive on the screen. But I wanted to ask you this question. The question is, can you think of a time when you didn't treat something with the right value only to realize that it was more or less valuable than you thought? What was it and how did you respond when you found out its true value? Probably thinking about something right now. I wanted to share with you uh, what my experience was when I answered this question. So for those of you who don't know, my wife and I, before moving here, we lived in Singapore for many years, and so um, this will be our 10th year being here in Brisbane, 
It's amazing how quick this, <laughs> the 10 years is gone. It's amazing. It uh, feels like just yesterday we moved here. But I remember that when we were leaving, um, because I was pastoring, I was a part of the pastoral team of our Every Nation Church in Singapore. And when we left to, to, to move here, uh, you know, different friends were giving us gifts. And there was one uh, of my very close friends, his life group, uh, they, they pitched some money together and they knew that I, I loved sneakers. I wasn't as much uh, a sneakerhead as, I'm not really a huge sneakerhead, but like I do like sneakers. And so they put all this money together and they bought me a pair of, for those of you who know your way around sneakers, this is a, a pair of Jordan 12s, okay? Uh, and so let's just say they're pricey. They're pretty expensive. But I didn't realize how much they were worth. Um, and so anyway, I kind of came here with the mindset that Singapore is like Australia and specifically Brisbane, right? And so in Singapore, right, you can leave, you can go to what we call a kopitiam or a hawker center, which is like an outdoor food court. And basically, if you're ordering your food, you can leave your laptop and your wallet on the table and you can go order your food and come back and no one will take it, right? Because uh, I don't know what it is about Singapore. Everybody, everybody kind of has that mentality. I moved here to Australia thinking that it was going to be the same. And so for those of you who remember, I know the Asawas will remember and Mike remembers, a few of you will remember, Upu will remember. We used to live on Hertford Street in Mount Gravette. Um, and our house kind of had a door, it had a big red door, and then there was like an outdoor area that was kind of concealed by this little, um, if you can imagine, a bit of railing about this high. And so I thought, oh, okay, just like Singapore, I want to leave my Jordans outside, you know, because after you wear them, you know what I'm saying? You just want to air them out a little bit. I would leave them there, and, and, and you know, long story short, you know what happens, right? Yeah, uh, the, the basically uh, somebody came and was able to, I don't know how they saw my Jordans were there, because they were kind of concealed from the street, but uh, they helped themselves to the shoe buffet that was there. Uh, that pair of Jordans, as well as I had a couple of other pairs of sneakers that were there. Uh, it was heartbreak for me, but uh, it was only later on I found out just how much how valuable they were. I never told my friend, but I am truly thankful for that gift. Now I know how valuable it is. And so I've learned that valuable lesson of making sure you take your stuff inside, right? Uh, if, you, if you hold it valuable. Um, but I wanted to ask that question with regards to this. Like what holds ultimate value in your life? When you think about the things that you value, what is the thing that you hold, you hold to be of ultimate value? What obsesses your every thought? It's all you can think about. What changes the way you talk? You know, as a musician, I'm all into frequencies, right? And you can tell that a person's passionate about something by the way that there's a variance in the frequencies of which they talk, right? If they're bored with something, they will talk like this and it will all be monotone and it will sound like a robot, right? But if they're excited about something, there's such a high and a low, there's a variance in the way that they talk because there's just a huge excitement that goes with the huge range of frequencies, right? Or, you know, for the brothers that are in here, if you're in love with somebody, it's amazing how your voice changes, right? Here in Australia, right, when you see a brother normally talk, you know, Australian accent, you know, he goes a little bit through the nose, yeah, how's it going, mate? It's so good to have you here at church, mate. And then the moment they see a girl they like, the, the voice just drops a little bit, you know. Oh, it's good to see you here, sister. You know, it's just amazing how when you are passionate about something, when you hold something in high value, even your voice will change. Everything changes around you. So I want you to hold that thought in the back of your mind. And I'm going to introduce you to, uh, for some of you it won't be introduction. For some of you it will be introduction. 
But I'm going to introduce you to three valuable things, three valuable concepts from the book of Leviticus. Now, for those of you who don't know about Leviticus, okay, it's the third book of the Bible. And usually for those who love to start the year off, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. It's awesome in Genesis. Exodus is pretty good. You get to Leviticus and it's like, Lord, help me, right? But I'm going to show you the power of what God is trying to show us with regards to value from the book of Leviticus. Because there's some powerful stuff in here that actually alludes to what Jesus would do uh, hundreds of not over a thousand years later. And these are the three concepts I want to introduce you to from the passage that we read in Leviticus 16. Here it is. The mercy seat. Everybody say mercy seat. Scapegoat. Everybody say scapegoat. And then atonement. Everybody say atonement. Atonement, atonement. See, I was talking about voice and being passionate. Everybody say atonement. There we go. That's better. Thank you, Jordy. All right. Now, in order to kind of set a precipice for where we want to go with today's message, we need to go back about five or six chapters because we hear about these, these young men that died, right? The sons of Aaron. So to give it a little bit more context, I'm going to go to Leviticus 10. And Leviticus 10 says, now, Nadab and Abihu, interesting names, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. Now, a censer, if you remember, um, in Victorian times, they would have these oil lamps about this much, and then they have a little oil canister in it that will keep the, the, the flame burning. Any of you? None of you were there, but like, crying out loud, have you seen Mary Poppins? All right, so just, just, just imagine that lamp. Like, a, a little uh, censer is like about that same size, and it would hold um, the flame of which an incense would come out of it. So... Each of them took a censer and put a fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, everybody say unauthorized, that's important, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, some of y'all may be reading that and go, what's up with God? But any of you, when you were young, you used to like playing with fire? Anybody else like to play with fire? I just came from a time in Hawaii. Now, I know that, you know, for, for some of us, you know, those of us who grew up in New Zealand, we had a thing called Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, and let me just tell you something, okay? In Hawaii, if you ever go to Hawaii, try to schedule your trip around New Year's Day because it is interesting, right? On New Year's Eve, there's all these fireworks. Now, fireworks are illegal in Hawaii, right? So, but all of a sudden, these, 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 these fireworks just cover the whole horizon, um, because everybody's just lighting off their fireworks, and uh, much like Guy Fawkes, but like even more so, and some of them are a little more homemade and interesting. Um, but you, you just see all these these fireworks because everybody likes to play with the the, the fire. And you see, uh, you know, we'd just be walking down the street. It was quite an event just being able to see so much fireworks on the horizon. I I, I, I kid you not, like it was a lot more interesting than, for me personally seeing that lit up. Um, skyline than, than going to Sydney Harbour because it was DIY, if <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and, so, and so I find it interesting because like we, there's something about us that likes the work of fire when it's displayed that way. So I, I'm thinking, right, like I, I may be reading too much into the text, but I'm thinking that these two men, these two young men either had one of two thoughts. Number one, they like to play with fire, or number two, they observed their father, who was the priest, Aaron, and they saw the way he did something and wanted to imitate him. 
And so they took the tools, they took the flame and did what dad does, but their dad never taught them how to get the authorization of God to do. There's a holiness about which you do these things, about which you come to uh, these spaces where worship is executed. I would venture to say, right, many of us in this room and reading that scripture would be like, man, that's a little harsh, God, that you would do that to them. But you've got to understand that we operate in the realm of understanding fairness and justice in accordance with what we see as us being the center, but not understanding the standard of holiness of who God is. He is holy. He is righteous. There is no impurity in him. In fact, his eyes are even too pure to look upon evil, uh, Psalm 92 verse 15 says, and even Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 if you're looking for a reference. See, God himself is an all-consuming fire that dwells in unapproachable light. But somehow, over long periods of time, there's become a very casual approach towards wanting to see God move in our lives. We must think this way, that there are no small sins against a holy God. Let me say that one more time. There are no small sins against a holy God. Now, obviously, this passage in Leviticus reveals just this huge chasm or this huge gulf that stands between us being unholy, unrighteous, impure, and him being holy, righteous, pure. And there's just this enormous chasm, which if we commit ourselves to sin, has enormous consequences. But we don't, you know, we're not judged in the same way that our judicial system is judged. Sin is sin. And that small sin has enormous consequences. Think about it. Last week, for those of you who were here last week, I talked about from Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. Now, if you actually think about it, right, all they did was, right, even just saying it, all they did was partake of some fruit. All they did was take a bite of some fruit. That doesn't sound like a huge sin, like they, they, they robbed a bank or something. They just took some fruit. I don't know whether it was an apple. I think it was a durian, to be honest. Genesis 3, 6, they partook of fruit, right? What about Lot's wife? You all remember this? They were commanded, do not look back. When you move out of Sodom and Gomorrah, do not look back. And what did she do? Oh, I forgot my Louis V bag. Turn back and Masima in the Samoan, right? Like they just turned into salt, a pillar of salt. Some of you all might read that text and go, that's a little harsh, God. What about Moses? You remember this when Moses hit the rock twice? All he did, after all these years of faithfulness, he hit a rock twice, and then it was told to him that he would never enter the promised land. About Uzzah, who touched the ark, God clearly told him, you can't touch this, right? Like, I know, bad joke. Second Samuel 6, verse 7 says he touched the ark, died on spot. Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, we read about them lying about their real estate and their profit. I don't know about you, but when I read that list of sins, I'm like, I've got some worse ones. Am I the only one in here? Like when we're comparing apples to apples and sin to sin, sin is sin, no matter how big or how small. God is holy. He's pure. And that's the way we need to view him. So hopefully you can automatically see that there is this huge, infinite, eternal chasm between us and God. Now we come back to the text. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. 
And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the wall before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, let me just touch on this before we unpack what the mercy seat is. I think it's important to see this. See, Aaron held the position of the priest. But who's the one giving the instructions to Aaron? It's Moses. Moses is not necessarily positionally the priest, but he is the one who has the deep relationship with God, so deep that, that God likens Moses to a friend. See, you can hold a position. Oh, I've been a Christian for 30 years, Pastor Nelly. I've been attending church here and there, and I've, you know, I've been in the way. Walking in the way of the Lord. That's the problem. Sometimes we get in the way, we need to move out of the way, right? And sometimes we position ourselves because we've got these accolades or things that we've achieved. But much like Paul says in Philippians 3, I count it all rubbish but to know God. And so Moses is one who didn't hold the position of priest but held the position because of his intimacy with God as a spokesperson to the priest, See, you can hold a position, but that position doesn't count for anything, especially if your next generation is not walking out in the promises of what God has for them when they don't understand the power of that holiness. And that's my prayer. Again, no condemnation, but that's my prayer for all of us who are parents, that there would be a Holy Spirit turnaround in our families, that we don't just hold the positions of fathers and mothers, but we have such a depth in our relationship with God that it spills over into the way that our kids walk and the next generations walk. Can I get an amen for somebody who's believing for that? So this is, this is the difference here. And so from here, we begin to look at this, this concept of God appearing in the cloud at the end of this passage over the mercy seat. And this is the mercy seat, right? Mercy seat is there on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this, this box-type figure that you see on your screen here is the, is the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, in it are handles, and they would carry that into wherever um, the Israelites would move. And then when they settled in, in the land of Israel and Judah, then they would put it in the temple. And only the high priest would be able to approach the Ark of the Covenant. For us that are uneducated in it maybe or uncultured, we would approach that as if it's just a box, a fancy box. But the Israelites looked upon it as the presence literal presence of God. And so the mercy seat is the golden lid that you see on the top there, the golden lid that covers the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the lid are the two figures of the cherubim, the, the angels that you can see on the screen here. And so there is a holiness and a covering of which is precious about the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? It's considered the throne of which God sits. Why? Because Moses, when he would come, or Aaron, when he would come in, in, in just a moment to the mercy seat, that would be the place of which God's voice would be heard from the mercy seat. The mercy seat was also the place where sacrifices were offered for the sins of Israel. So blood would be shed upon the mercy seat. And the reason why it's called the mercy seat, the seat aspect is the throne. The mercy is the fact that a holy God can commune with humans. I hope you understand this. Prayer is not something to be taken lightly. There was a price that had to be paid in order that you get prayers. You get to have prayer. You get to commune with a holy and righteous 
God. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Place where you could hear the voice of God. Numbers chapter 7 verse 89. For those of you who are taking notes, you can read into that. But the thing I love about it personally is that you see the cherubim with their lifted hands over treasuring just the, the, the presence of God. See, there are many reasons why we lift our hands in worship. I often get asked that question. Why do we lift our hands in worship? You know, last week I touched on surrender, right? Not that we're being robbed by God, so we're like, freeze and like that, but like it's universal, a sign of surrender. And if we are surrendered to God, it's automatic that we lift our hands. But throughout the Psalms, the Psalms speak a lot about the image of the worshiper lifting their hands in recognition of the source of their life. That my, my source of life is not just earthly things or the things that are around me, but my source is higher than me. Colossians 3 talks about how we don't fix our eyes on the things that are of this world. We focus ourselves upon things that are above. There is a source that is above me, not geographically or atmospherically, but there is a God who is above this world of whom I recognize as my source, as my Lord. So when I lift my hands, and notice I'm lifting my hands, not fists clenched with things in them, but I open my hands without agenda towards the one who is God. Now, likening it to this, this is the deeper reason why many Israelite worshipers in the Old Testament would lift their hands. It's a recognition of the Ark of the Covenant because Israelite worshipers, especially Messianic ones who believe that Christ has paid the price on the mercy seat and is now seated upon the throne, communicating with us according to Revelation 4 and 5, is that if the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God, the lifted hands are representative of the cherubim, right? And that the, as we lift our hands, the presence of God is in us. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. So when I lift my hands, I recognize the presence of the Lord is here, lives in me. And so when I lift my hands, I'm recognizing that power of what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. And now I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Much like the cherubim lifted over the mercy seat, I am now one who carries the Holy Spirit in me. If that doesn't excite you, your wood is wet. Verse 3 says, but in this way, Aaron shall come to the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around the waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. It's biblical. Have a shower and take a bath before you put your clothes on. All right, that's for somebody in here as a side note. All right, verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So let me break these sacrifices down a little bit. Um, so you've got the idea of, right, first the, the bull who is a sin offering. And this, this is offered as an offering for um, the sins of Aaron's house, obviously the sons who had committed this sin, but also the, uh, the sins of the priesthood. So the bull is that sin offering. And then the ram is a burnt offering, so it's completely consumed as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
much like God is the all-consuming fire, this ram is completely consumed, and it's noted that there is a pleasing aroma that rises to the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, right? This is confession time, but when I drive past the KFC, right, not that I drive through, but I drive around, and I wind the window down. Any of y'all know what I'm talking about? Because smells are free. And when I smell the scent of any of y'all experiences, you smell like there's one right around the corner from here. I believe that the low, I don't know whether it was the Lord or someone else that put that, that, that KFC. But like if you drive past it and it's a good day, not a rainy one like this, there's a smell that wafts into your nostrils like this. And, and it's, a, it's, it's like the Bible describes, it's a pleasing aroma, right? Any of you all know what I'm talking about? Some of you all are too righteous or vegan. Uh, just, just like personality, that's disgusting. I'm telling you, like that, that pleasing aroma that rises to the heavens comes from a consuming fire that consumes the sacrifice. I had to go there. I had to go there, Dan, just to help our people. All right? And so we need to understand this. So the ram is, is consumed for the sins. The bull is sacrificed for the sins of the house. And then they take these two goats. All right? And to describe this a little bit more so we can kind of grasp it, I, I purposely went to the message translation so this will help us unpack it a little bit more. So when Aaron finishes making the atonement for the Holy of Holies, we'll get to atonement in just a moment, the tent of meeting in the altar, he will bring up the live goat, lay both hands on the live goat's head and confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their acts of rebellion, all their sins. It must have been a long time grabbing this. Can you imagine this goat's head and just going, what did Victor do last Tuesday? Yeah, that's right. He was bad to his wife. We, we just put that on his head. Like he's going through all the sins, right? He will put all the sins on the goat's head and send it off into the wilderness and be led out by a man who was standing by and ready. The goat will carry all the iniquities to an empty wasteland. The man will let him loose out there in the wilderness. Now, the name for this, this concept of the goat, there's two goats. One is sacrificed. For the sins, not no longer about the, the priesthood or the sins of Aaron's house, but for all of Israel. One goat is sacrificed, and the other goat, they do this ritual, which would appear weird to us here in Brisbane in 2024, but that is holy ritual of which they'll take the goat's head and just begin to declare the sins of, of all of Israel onto that goat and then just let it out into the wilderness. This is the concept known as the scapegoat. Now, how, how many of you have used or heard this, this term being used? Uh, usually when you describe a scapegoat, right, it's somebody who basically sacrificed themselves uh, on behalf of a whole party. Like, you're the scapegoat, you're the one. But this idea of the scapegoat is actually a biblical one. It comes from Leviticus 16. Because scape comes from the word escape. Uh, the, the goat escapes out into the wilderness. Now, there's many theological concepts around the, the concept of the scapegoat Two of them I don't believe are true, but I just need to mention them to you. One of them, they would talk about, because uh, uh, the, the Hebrew word is azazel, as meaning goat, azel meaning uh, escape or to leave. And so the concept of azazel, one of the, the concepts is that they would declare a demon into the goat and then the goat would take off with the demon, just a possessed goat, can you imagine? And the head spinning around. No, there's none of that, okay? So there's no biblical precedence for that, but that exists. Another thing that they would say is that Azazel is actually a place of which the goat would be sent to. But again, there's not enough corroborative um, evidence for that. What most biblical scholars allude to 
is actually that the Azazel, the scapegoat, is the, is the fact that it's the actual goat, that the goat was sent, right? To be, it's one who is designated to be sent away, which is our modern understanding of scapegoat anyway. It's one who has been designated to be sent away. How many of you can already see that Christ is our scapegoat? Not only is he the first goat who was sacrificed, but he's also the one who was sent away in order that we be brought to life, to pay the price. You know, uh, the statement from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ is our scapegoat. He, uh, this is all a precedence for what would come in the Gospels. And so now we move into this overarching theme of the atonement. Verse 29 says, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement, everybody say atonement, atonement, all right, be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. I need us to understand, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Jewish culture, that the holiest day on the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur, which literally means the Day of Atonement. This is the first Yom Kippur. And so to this day, they celebrate this day, uh, this, this act of which Aaron commits himself to in obedience to God. And basically what happens on Yom Kippur is that there's a rectification, the practice of forgiveness, forgiveness of sins towards God and towards others. But can you imagine, right? If somebody does wrong to you the day after Yom Kippur, are you going to wait for the next Yom Kippur to forgive them? Boxing day, right? And then you have to wait till Christmas again to forgive them. This is the idea. But like the atonement is not just celebrated on one day, but there is an atonement that has been afforded to us once and for all. What's the concept of the atonement? The atonement is the price that's been paid in order for us to enter back into right relationship with God. I want you to see church because we live in a society that does not understand the concept of how holy God is and how beautiful his sacrifice is through his son Jesus to give us grace to be able to enter back into his presence. When you begin to understand the power of the gospel, you live differently because you hold the value differently. You protect it differently. You act differently. You move differently. You speak differently. The issue is that we have not attributed the value that is due to God. See, when I think about worship, it's not the songs we sing. It's not even the fact you've come into a worship service. The old English word worship comes from worship. When you attribute the worth to somebody or something that is worthy of the worship. That's what worship is, not a song, it's our lie. So atonement begins to understand this, the power of this. So I have on the image on the screen there, like just the combination of everything that I've talked about, and hopefully you can see Christ in all of this, right? That the mercy seat, right? The blood that's poured out on the mercy seat does not come from animals from your proverbial farm that you were talking about anymore. But there is the Lamb of God who was slain. And his blood was poured out on the mercy seat in order that we can come and have close communion with him. He is our great high priest. We don't need an Aaron anymore. We, we come into his presence because the high priest himself has given himself as the sacrifice. 
He is the scapegoat. He is both the one who was slain and the one who had to leave the presence of the Father in order that we may be invited back in and praise God that he is resurrected and now seated at the right hand of the Father. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave in order that we no longer have to walk in that place of torment any longer. We have that relationship with him. And much like the high priest used to have to bathe before he comes into the presence of God, we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We put on the linen garment of praise for the spirit of weariness and heaviness. You don't need to carry it anymore. He has cleansed you. He has clothed you. And now you have been atoned. The word atonement can be broken down at one meant. You were meant to walk at one with God. You were designed to walk that way. So when you can begin to see the preface of Leviticus launching its way into the gospel and the power of what Jesus did, you begin to understand the price that was paid. But here's the response. And I want to sum it up in this story. So back in the 19th century, right? In 1829 in the U.S., there was a guy by the name of George Wilson. And he, was, he, he robbed the U.S. mail and he jeopardized a, a mailman's life. He ended up pleading guilty to the charges and the court sentenced him, right? They sentenced him to death by hanging. And there were friends that were friends of Andrew Jackson, who was the president of the U.S. at the time. And they asked the president of the United States to issue Wilson a pardon. But Wilson refused the pardon. And the case ended up going to the Supreme Court, of which I'll read off the screen here. This is what happened. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the official ruling for the court. He said, a pardon is an act of grace, he said, the validity of which is not complete without acceptance. It might be rejected by the person to whom it was offered and the court could not force it upon him. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. You can hear what I say with regards to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who was slain. You can hear all of that you can hear the price that's been paid. You can even hear how it was prefaced over a thousand years before Christ in Leviticus. All of the Old Testament is revealed in Jesus. You can read and hear and even have the presence of the Holy Spirit speak to you today. But you cannot receive the benefits of Christ's atonement unless you receive it by faith. It's one thing to recognize the price that's been paid. It's another thing to actually walk in it by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Will you sit here and hear the good news of what God has done and receive it by faith? Or will you just take that as holy information and continue walking in the way that we walk? Have you received the benefits of Christ's atonement by faith? Do you believe in the power of what he has done? I'm going to invite us just at this moment just to reflect on whether we have received Jesus' atonement or his at one by faith. Take a moment to think or where you are at. Let's, let's all stand to our feet. I'll just invite us. If we can have the lights come down, have the worship team to come on up while everybody's just standing. Just if you, everyone can just uh, take a moment just to reflect, maybe so that you stay and remain um, undistracted. Maybe you can just close your eyes and just begin to think, have I... Have, have I received and do I believe the power of what Christ has done for me? This is our invitation today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us the opportunity 
to receive Jesus at one minute or atonement by faith. Just in this moment of reflection, I just wanted to read you the words of Charles Spurgeon, who speaking on this specific passage said this, Christ is mighty to save because God did not turn away his sword, but it was sheathed into his son's heart. He did not remit the debt for it was paid in drops of precious blood. And now the great receipt is nailed to the cross and our sins with it so that we may go free if we are believers in him. For this reason, he is mighty to save. True sense of the word. Your desire today is to receive the finished work of his atonement. I want to invite you this morning Pray this prayer with me. Let's repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I come to you today recognizing even deeper today the work that you have done to save me. And today, I accept your atonement and I receive the power of what you have done thank you that I can come into right relationship with you because of the price that you have paid I receive your forgiveness and I thank you God that I am now completely yours and you are mine in Jesus name in Jesus name amen prayed that prayer with me today so with every head bowed and every eye closed continue to stay in this point of reflection if you prayed that prayer with me today we've heard a lot about altars and sacrifices just so I know who I prayed for or who I was praying with today and I just get you to lift your hand and say Pastor Nelly I prayed that prayer I'm going to take this atonement seriously for those of you who have your hands lifted you can just uh, you can look at me quickly I, I want to invite you those of you who have your hands lifted just as a symbol of bringing your life to the altar and saying God my life is completely yours just to come out from where you're standing and this area here is an altar and just in the presence of our friends here I want you to just come forward we want to pray and just seal the, the work that God's doing don't worry about what people may think actually we all celebrate with you the stand that you're taking today. If I can have some of our prayer team come forward, our life group leaders come to pray with these ones. Father, we just uh, pray these awesome brothers and sisters who are taking the stand, just recognizing the power of the price that you've paid. Father, I thank you that your work is continuing to be done in their lives, Lord God thank you Lord that he who began the good work in them will be faithful to complete it thank you Lord that your blood cleanses them from all unrighteousness and right now as we're standing here as a spiritual family alongside these brothers and sisters taking this stand we pray that your Holy Spirit would seal the work that the enemy will have no foothold to be able to try and tear apart what you have begun in them. 
but you are faithful to finish what you start. Right now, in Jesus' name, we declare, Lord, all of us, including those of us who have come to stand in prayer and agreement with the ones who have come forward, we stand here in covenant with you, God, because of your atonement. We declare that we are completely yours and that you are ours. And this is a holy moment that you are resealing the work that you are doing. Have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Everyone say amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's message brought to you by Every Nation Brisbane. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at ianbrisbane.org. Thank you for listening. God bless.